back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Good evening to you both. Right. In this episode, we are going to tell the incredible tale of Dr. Scott Smith, an anesthesiologist who in 1946 purposefully paralyzed himself in a controlled setting. So, Avi, to start with, why this story? Why did he do this? And what exactly did he do? Yeah, it seems sort of insane to us now, but at the time, this experiment actually endeavored to answer a very legitimate scientific question about which there was equipoise. And maybe legitimate is a strong word, but it was a scientific question that was actively being studied. And that was whether neuromuscular paralytics sedate patients and paralyze them, or if they just paralyze. And of course, we know now with certainty that neuromuscular blockade absolutely does not cause sedation. But at the time in the 1940s, when paralytics were just starting to be used clinically, it actually wasn't so clear. So before we hear more about what this Scott Smith did in the 1940s, it might be valuable to hear a little bit about the lead up to that time and maybe a bit about the history of neuromuscular blockade and, and you know its use in medicine you know, again up until that period of time. Curare has long been used as a neuromuscular blocker for hunting purposes by indigenous peoples in Central and South America. It blocks the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor in the neuromuscular junction, which leads to paralysis. And in the 1930s, anesthesiologists started using curare as part of the induction of general anesthesia. But this crucial question arose. If someone is chemically paralyzed, they look unconscious. But are they actually unconscious or do they just seem so? You know, does curare have sedating effects on its own or not? And again, we take this for granted now, but this was not at all certain in the 1930s and 40s when curare was just being started to use clinically. But please tell me that does not mean that they gave neuromuscular blocking agents without any sedation in the like 30s and 40s. Yeah, and doing surgery on them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, terrifyingly, that is exactly what I'm saying. Some clinicians apparently really strongly believed that curare caused sedation. And they believed that strongly enough that either they used no sed sedatives or anesthesia whatsoever um, when paralyzing patients, or they would use local anesthesia. And there are case reports of that happening. And it's awful. And my sense is at the time that the majority of clinicians were not like that and were not using curare alone, even though there perhaps was some uncertainty. But there was enough, there were enough out there that were foregoing sedation, period, to raise this alarm among anesthesiologists like Scott Smith. I feel like this observation raises so many questions. <laughs> One of the simplest ones is okay, so. It seems like patients are involved in this process. Did anyone ever think to be like, "Hey, ma'am, what was your experience under curare?" Like, did, did like do you, do you get a sense in reading some of the old reports of this that 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 ever happen? Patients ever get asked that question? Uh, the report, one of the reports that, that I read that sort of was justifying this study, and it was sort of like. There are clinicians out there who are using it this way, and we have grave concerns about this, but it, uh, no kind of statement or questioning as to like, 
why didn't anybody has the patience? Yeah. And do you get a sense for why some clinicians had this really strong belief that it was a sedating agent or was it, you know, sometimes people have beliefs that are not necessarily based in fact. I'm not sure. I think there may have been some sort of mixed data from animal studies. And so I think right. the wa- the water was a little muddy from some of the like in vivo animal stuff that had been done. Right, so there was a, right. there was some equipoise, but I'm not sure. It's tough. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder like what would what would occur today or like how would this have occurred today? How would we have discovered this today? I certainly hope that it would be that we would have heard from patients and like patient right. advocates. But yeah, what a story. Okay. But going back to Scott Smith and how he came to this study, can you tell us kind of how this individual study came about and how he came to purposefully paralyze himself? Under controlled conditions, of course, right? I mean <laughs> Yeah. Well, let me start by saying that I, I believe that Scott Smith is actually a hero in medicine. And I, I, this is a crazy story, but Smith was a pioneer in the field of anesthesiology and not just for this event. You know, His main contributions later in his career centered around innovations in residency education and over a long and prominent academic career, he really did become a leading light in the field of anesthesia. And it's worth remembering that at this time, in the 40s, anesthesiology was a relatively young specialty compared to medicine or surgery, with the first procedural anesthesia only occurring in the etherdome at Mass General in 1846, which ironically was exactly 100 years before Smith experimentally paralyzed himself. And he was really, you know, understandably, he was very uncomfortable with the idea of patients being paralyzed for procedures without sedation. Good on him, but I, I think we have to get into it. So what exactly happened uh, in 1946? So essentially, Smith made himself the subject of his own experiment to answer this question, to find out what would happen if he paralyzed himself without any sedation. So at 2.11 in the afternoon on January 10th, 1946, he submitted to awake paralysis by D-tubocurarine, which is a purified extract of curare. Which was and which was administered by some of his anesthesia colleagues. So this was a monitored setting. They were fully prepared to intubate him once he was paralyzed. They had him connected to EEG to confirm that he was awake. And they eventually published this story in 1947 in the journal Anesthesia with the title "The Lack of Cerebral Effects of Tubo D Tubo Curarine." They just kind of set it out there. It doesn't doesn't sedate. And when you read the article, they basically give a time-stamped play-by-play of what happened after they started pushing these doses of the paralytic. So you're, we're sort of like reading the anesthesia record from 1946. Like we're, we're going through the back files in the electronic medical record of 1946, like looking at all the timestamps. That's kind of cool. Okay, so so how did this start? Like, do we see like push dose deep? tubocurarine at 2.11 p.m.? Did they like slowly dose escalate? How did he respond? Yeah. Tell us what happened. (laughs) Yeah. So they started by administering 200 units of D-tubocurarine over a 15-minute period. And they actually worked out this communication scheme with him for when he began to lose muscle tone and function. So he would speak as long as he was able and just communicate what he was experiencing then he would use voluntary muscle contraction when he could no longer speak. And then once he was paralyzed, he would, of course, be totally unable to communicate. So 
The first infusion began at 2.11 p.m., and he reported feeling a bit dizzy and felt like he had a, a glow, but he was wide awake. He then began having difficulty closing his eyes and his mouth, and by 2.20 p.m., Smith could no longer speak, and though he apparently could still nod his head, twitch his fingers, and was still very much communicating with his colleagues. All right, so my palms are beginning to sweat, so... Uh... You got to keep going because I'm. What I want him to get the reversal agent, so you got to you got to you got to get to the end of the story because I'm getting nervous for him. Yeah, I I know, and you know, at this point, his work of breathing began to to visibly increase. The paper describes his breathing pattern as diaphragmatic, and as this is going, Smith's colleagues are asking him if he was awake. With you know, in purposeful limb movements, he was indicating I'm awake. They even asked him if he wanted to be intubated, and he said no. So, of course, uh, because he wasn't fully paralyzed yet, they gave him another dose of the D-tubocurarine. So by 2.26, he was still indicating correct answers to questions. He was clearly not sedated. They tested pain response. He could feel pain, but he could really no longer breathe well spontaneously. He couldn't clear his glottic secretions. He couldn't open his eyelids. They manually opened his eyelids, and I guess he apparently had marked double, double vision because he couldn't move his eyes. It's like the stuff of horror films. So this, you know, this painful, really frightening process goes on for another 20 minutes, like 20 minutes of this, and he progressively loses all voluntary movement and the ability to breathe spontaneously. So finally, mercifully, at 2.45 p.m., uh, Smith's colleagues finally intubated him. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so does he or any of his like recollections of this, do we know what this was like for him? Yeah, I mean- 30 years later, Smith was interviewed about the experiment, and he recalled a profound sense of dyspnea and a choking feeling that he felt like basically up until his his colleagues intubated him. Um, he said he felt like he was drowning. And if you think about how terrifying it would be to be unable to move one's diaphragm to breathe, and when you read the description of what they had to do, they, they basically were continuously suctioning his airway to keep it clear of secretions. That sort of makes sense. And I'll quote him here. So this is what he said, you know, looking back 30 years later, he said, I felt that I would give anything to be able to take one deep breath. The period of a few seconds taken for the tracheal intubation seemed unusually long. And, you know, in that interview, which was decades later after the event, he still vividly remembered a sense of anxiety and panic that they were so profound that he recalled feeling like he was psychotic. It's it's remarkable to me because you could argue that you know 226 he had he was you know basically nearly paralyzed but he said no no keep going we have to be certain about this and they went for another 20 minutes i mean it's clear that he wanted a, this to be as settled as possible and to him i guess it wouldn't have been settled unless he was truly so paralyzed that he needed intubation the fact that he was able to go through this is is one of the many remarkable things so how how did it end how how did they get him out of the paralysis so at 2.51 p.m., which is about 40 minutes after the experiment began, he started to receive neostigmine uh, doses for paralysis reversal. And then, then over the next two hours or so, they gave him more doses of the neostigmine. And slowly but surely, he recovered his respiratory function, his swallowing, his limb strength came back. And then by 6 o'clock, he was weak but felt essentially normal. Wow. What a, what a couple of like four hours for in this story. I, you know, it makes me think a lot about like patients of ours 
Smith, I mean, one of the benefits to Smith is that he understood what was going on, it sounds like, and knew what intubation was. But I think of so many of our patients who are intubated and don't know why, like, breath is being pushed into their lungs. And I imagine that it must feel really similar. I mean, it sounds like he really had a scarring experience from this, but physically did not come to any harm. You know, I, I'm still kind of processing all of, like, what do you think? Do you, do you see, uh, you mentioned that you see him as a hero, but do you think of this as like going rogue? Was this what was needed to do in order to prove this point? I think it's a really important question. And it seems like Smith and his colleagues, they did take appropriate precautions to ensure his physical safety, like you said, but it's hard to imagine someone today doing something this brazen and there not being some kind of professional consequences. Um, but at the same time, you know, like we said, he is sort of a hero and patients were being harmed by this ambiguity about curare, you know, whether it's sedated and paralyzed or just paralyzed. And he literally took it upon himself to definitively answer this question. And like Tony, like you said, made sure that he went all the way to being fully, fully paralyzed to definitively answer the question. So what happened after? Did, was the response, you know, swift and everyone kind of changed their mind or did things continue on as they had been? So thankfully, after this, it was sort of definitive. Like you said, it was proven that paralytics do not sedate. And it actually probably contributed to a sea change in anesthesia in that the use of paralytics gained sort of wider traction amongst anesthesiologists by the 1950s. And as a response to that, pharmaceutical companies started developing better paralytics. And that round of development led to succinylcholine and pancuronium, which are obviously still in clinical use today. So it it did um, it was sort of an inflection point in the field. It's kind of amazing that one person, like an N of one study, was able to achieve this level of impact. Like my you know case report from medical school, that N of one study does not have a. Uh, this level of impact, I feel that it's a little more than typical. It's kind of amazing for an N of one study to have this much impact. Yeah, agreed. And you know, I think it's also remarkable that just the, the idea of physician self experimentation, I think, is is fascinating. And he wasn't the first physician to do it. He wasn't the last. One of the most well known examples of physician self experimentation with an N of one, like you said, Hannah, was Werner Forsman a surgical resident in Germany in the late 1920s. He read research reports of right heart catheterization in animals and decided to try it on himself you know, as a surgical resident. So he inserted a Foley catheter into his left arm and advanced it into what he was assuming was going to be his right atrium because he was, of course, doing this blind. And he then went to radiology and convinced an x-ray technician to take a chest radiograph that did prove that he had successfully performed a right heart catheterization. And you know he was promptly fired from his residency, but eventually won the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine in 1956. And you know another example of N of one study of with physician self-experimentation is Barry Marshall, an Australian physician who, along with his collaborator Robin Warren, believed that infection with the bacteria Helicobacter pylori was the primary cause of gastric ulcers, but nobody else believed them. So in 1984, he, Marshall, drank a concentrated broth of Helicobacter pylori. He promptly developed severe gastritis and gastric ulcers, and that proved their theory correct. So in 2005, he too won the Nobel Prize for that discovery. So it's Smith, he wasn't the first, he wasn't, he wasn't the last. It's certainly a complex issue. 
You're forgetting um, Bruce Banner, the famous physicist who subjected himself to gamma radiation, becoming the Incredible Hulk. I was going to say, is that the Hulk? <laughs> yeah, so that form of self-experimentation, uh, I would, would argue, is uh, also quite profound. So, Tony, as a, someone who's an ethicist, what's your perspective on this concept of physician self-experimentation? Yeah, I don't think there's been that much written about it, and I have no expertise on this. And so I'll just offer a couple comments, but knowing that these are not refined. One comment is something that Hannah alluded to earlier, and it's this idea of an end of one study, which is essentially what these are, uh, or what this is an example of. And one could argue that in this case, you know, if anyone is concerned about informed consent, doing self-experimentation is probably the hardiest form of informed consent. You, you know, there's probably no one who knew more about what the experiment entailed than Scott Smith. And so informed consent really isn't the issue with self-experimentation. I think the issue, if any, is about the results, whether or not any end of one trial's results can be interpreted with any confidence. And then I think the idea uh, that some people have caution about is the sort of person that might be willing to do self-experimentation, you fear that they might be willing to do anything to get the results published. And so maybe you have to have a little bit more caution about interpreting the results and, and trusting their validity. Now, that's, I think, a, a little bit of a negative spin on, on this kind of thing. But I think the idea is that I don't know that the ethics are necessarily unsound, but you do have to be a little bit cautious about interpreting the results. Here, the results are probably unimpeachably obvious. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's like a really elegant study, or it's like, it just, it's beautiful in the way that the results are so self-evident that like an N of one study is able to prove this point That's for right. decades. Um, it's just pretty impressive. It does make me wonder, Tony, your, uh, your point about the, like, you know, what happens if if you do a study on yourself and then reviewer two like rejects it? Like, what about the guy who did the knuckle crack? You guys have heard about the man who cracked... Um, all of the knuckles on his right hand for 50 years and then compared the level of arthritis between his left and right hands at the end of 50 years and published it. I I've heard this alluded to, but I don't remember what he found. Yeah. What were the results? I, I think he found that there's no increased risk of osteoarthritis. <laughs> we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, the, the link to this study. <laughs> but like, can you imagine if reviewer two was like, actually, I'd I'd like to request a change to the study protocol. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's really an amazing study. So, Avi, thank you for sharing with us uh, the remarkable story of Dr. Smith. Do you want to go through some take-homes? Do you have any, any things to share? Yeah. And honestly, my main take-home point is that neuromuscular paralytics don't cause sedation. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Smith. <laughs> That's what Scott Smith sought to prove. He subjected himself to an excruciating, terrifying self-experiment, but he successfully proved that and changed the field of anesthesiology. So I guess that would be my take home. A fascinating, if uh, terrifying story that, you know, at least it's, there's a little bit of, well, there's quite a bit of a silver lining in that he uh, changed the course of anesthesiology and I think medicine more generally, and probably led to change a lot more quickly than if he had never done this. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Uh, thanks, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We're excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org 
slash curious clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.